an image familiar, clay molded by hand. But who is the potter and who is the clay? Does the outcome depend on the hour, the day? Does faithfulness or the lack force the great potter's hand? Will he crush or caress? Will the clay understand? Will the clay see the joy mixed with love and with tears that water the great potter's eye through the years as he labors to fashion his original design, the glorious vessel that he had in mind? Will the final result be a beautiful, elegant pot, one that is useful or one that is not? Whatever the outcome, whole chipped fragmented shards, the process is dreadfully, painfully hard. It's best if we follow the potter's great plan, for we are the clay in the Almighty's hand. Jeremiah 18, first through the 10th verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Jeremiah is just a killjoy, isn't he? Prophetic denunciations great on our sensibilities, don't they? God in our secularized, neutered theodicy teaches us that uh, he's above and beyond such non-spiritual speech. God is always unfailingly nice to us, isn't he? I mean, what good is a God that isn't nice, tame, sedate, willing to overlook our rough edges, willing to let it slide? A God who's not long-suffering for our wanton ways, surely is not the God of the Bible, at least not the God we worship, because we want God to be 
Nice. The problem with nice is that it comes, I've been told, from the Latin word null, meaning empty, meaning zero, meaning you're nice if you ain't got nothing else to give. And if that's true, then our reshaping the image of God into the nice grandfatherly old duff that we often picture him in in Western society, when we picture a God at all, is that we've essentially reduced God to the margins, to Sunday morning from 10 o'clock to hopefully only 11. Although y'all know me. <laughs> I figured I'd say that in self-defense. Jeremiah calls us to look at God as a partner in creation with us. And he takes Yahweh's point of view. There has been a covenant established. God over and over again asks his people, look, I would like to be your God. Would you like to be my people? Yes, we would, Yahweh. Please deliver us from slavery. Please deliver us from the wilderness. Please deliver us into a land of milk and honey. Please let us build a temple. Over and over and over again, the covenant has been reaffirmed. But the problem is that Yahweh married a serial adulterer. That over and over again, Israel breaks the covenant. Now, I've done my share of pastoral counseling, unfortunately. As a pastoral counselor, I'm a pretty good urban missiologist. <laughs> And the folks who've received my counseling would probably tell you that too. And I have sat with people who have been stung by a broken relationship, by a spouse who has broken the vows and the bonds of relationship. They don't feel like being nice. And I would be remiss as a pastoral counselor to encourage them to be nice. Oh, let it slide. He's a nice guy. I've, I, that's clergy malpractice. Jeremiah is taking Yahweh's point of view in the midst of a broken relationship, in the midst of a covenant that has been trashed and thrashed and for all intents and purposes, destroyed. It is Israel's unfaithfulness that is at issue here. Not God as some cosmic meanie. It is Israel's unfaithfulness and Yahweh's expression of pain over that 
And I guess just as a theological starting point, if I had to choose between a God who feels pain and expresses it and a God who in the midst of a broken relationship chooses piddling niceties, I'll take the painful God any day and twice on Sundays. And it's this God that Jeremiah is trying to remind Israel of one more time, one last chance before, before the nation is utterly ruined, before the people of God disintegrate into the dustbin of history. Jeremiah's mission given to him by Yahweh himself is to implore the people of Israel to return to that covenant relationship because even now, broken upon broken upon broken covenant, Yahweh is willing to restore. And Jeremiah tries to tell that story through pottery. Now, I tried really hard to take a pottery class in college. Uh, I needed an unit of fine arts or, or physical education to complete my BA. Just one unit. And I thought pottery would be so cool. And, and the pottery instructor saw me the first day and said, you know, there's still openings in volleyball. <laughs> she did. She really did. So I got my unit in volleyball and graduated. The volleyball teacher said, you know, there's a pottery class opening. <laughs> so I'm not real good with the whole wheel thing and clay and, you know, I... I watched a bunch of YouTubes and videos in preparation for today, and it's like, how do they do that? It's amazing. Yahweh instructs Jeremiah in chapter 18 to go to the potter's house, and there you will hear my words. Jeremiah has been through a lot. A young kid who gets called by God. And this story that is told in the Old Testament of him begins there and is bookended with him old and blind and led off in exile to Egypt. And in the middle, nothing is in any kind of linear form. The book of Jeremiah is not a, is not a sequential story. The big middle third of the book is a jumble of stories arranged with an order other than chronology at play. And so we don't know when this story happens. We don't know if this is early in Jeremiah's ministry or this is late and Israel's about to uh, succumb to Babylon. We don't know. We, we just know that the stakes are high and that Jeremiah feels the, the, the height of these stakes. He, he feels the pressure of being the prophet of God called to try one last chance to bring this, this people of God back into a covenant with their God. And the word of the Lord comes to him and says, go to the potter's house. 
Oy vey, I got better things to do. I got I, I, I to gotta go, go preach at the temple. I got to try to convince the king to turn. Go to the potter's house. Go not to the seats of power to hear my voice. Go to the places where things are made, where, where stuff is created. That's where I speak. And so Jeremiah does. He goes to the potter's house. And there was the potter working at the wheel. And Jeremiah observes that, I don't know, maybe he's not all that good a potter. Uh, maybe he should have taken a volleyball class too. <laughs> but uh, his first attempt to throw a pot fails. Now, if that were me, I'd have probably taken the clay and thrown it against a wall somewhere. But this potter simply folds it back up and starts over. And starts to make a new pot out of that which didn't work. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Can I not... Do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done. Can I not start over with you? We read Jeremiah 18 as this. God who is so mad at Israel that he's ready to destroy them. But hear what's being said. Can can I not just take the clay and start over again? The potter's first attempt, not so good. So while the clay is still wet, he folds it up, pats it back down, and he starts a new one. Can I not do that with you? The potter didn't give up on the clay. He didn't give up on the task of making a pot. He went back to work. Making, creating, living. And so God unfolds. He, he unpacks his sovereign grace in this story. He unpacks his sovereign freedom in this story. Can I not do this? Am I not God? And he unpacks a sovereign invitation. If you'll just... Hear what I'm doing, Israel. If you just listen. I don't know how many times I've sat with couples in counseling and heard the pain in the voice of one or often both of them. And they can't hear each other. They can't hear the pain that the other has. They're so wrapped up in their own pain. Israel, so wrapped up in its fear of no longer being a, a great regional power, but being squished between an ascendant Babylon and a descendant Egypt. Caught in the crosshairs between these two great powers that are going to go to war and are going to go to war in their territory. And Israel, instead of trusting Yahweh, the Yahweh who has delivered them time and time and time again, 
they start playing the geopolitical wonder game. And Yahweh say, don't do that. Listen to me. I am full of grace. I give you freedom. There is hope. Listen. Even though you've broken your relationship with me countless times, I can still take the clay that is Israel and fold it up again and pat it on the wheel and start afresh. You don't think I can do that? Watch me. And Jeremiah hears the word of the Lord. God is still at work. That's the point of Jeremiah 18. God doesn't give up. We think the prophetic crankiness of Jeremiah means that somehow God gives up on us. And we think, what have I done? What did I do wrong? I'm a nice person. God doesn't give up on us. That's the point of Jeremiah 18. No matter how many times we are wont to break the covenant, God doesn't give up on us. God is still at work. God's grace, Jeremiah 18 teaches us, is total. He never gives up. Whether we deserve it or not is an irrelevant question in the gospel. Our, our deservedness is off the table because the answer is, yeah, none of us deserve another chance. God gives it out of his character, out of his grace, out of his mercy. God's grace is total. God's freedom is absolute. God continues to choose to work on us, in us, through us, because of us, in spite of us, out of his will. Not because, again, because we're deserving of, we, we somehow, you know, really we're, we're, we're just kind of knuckleheads and we really do have our act together, but we kind of mess up every so often. So God, it's really in God's best interest to work with us. Not so much. God's action. It's his freedom that is absolute. And he says, yeah, you're my creation. You're, you're my hope. You're who I bless. So I'm going to take the clay and start again. And God's invitation is constant. God's desire and his design is to draw us into life with him. God's desire and his design is not to smack us down when we screw up. That, that's, a, that's a nice little myth we like to carry around. The truth is much harder to bear. That God always designs the world and always desires to draw us into life with him. That that is always God's intent. You see, you and I, we are all God's plan B. 
None of us get it right. We're all, we're, we're all spoiled pots. Every one of us. When we look into our souls, it, we don't have to go too far to see the brokenness. Well, I don't have to go too far <laughs> to see the brokenness in my own life. And I suspect that's true of each of us. That it doesn't take a lot of digging to see flaws. And we can live with those flaws and say, well, I'm broken, God doesn't love me, so I'll go do whatever I want to do, and yeah, whatever. Or we can say, yeah, I'm, I'm broken and God can't fix me, I'm beyond redemption, so I'll just do whatever I want to do. Or we can say, this is God, this creator of heaven and earth, this, this, this great champion of our lives, who is willing to take us, flaws and all, and remold us gently and again and again into that which is beautiful into that which functions well in the world, into that which has purpose and meaning. Because we are all operating off plan B in our lives. The Apostle Paul said it this way when he wrote to the church in Philippi, that church that was full of conflict, that church where people were pointing their fingers at each other and saying, you're not in the kingdom. And the other side would say, no, you're not in the kingdom. You know? And Paul said, wait a second. I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are works in progress. Clay at the potter's wheel, being fashioned and formed into God's great purpose of redeeming the world. And so this morning, some questions for us to reflect on. Can we, can we rest in the possibility that God is actually at work in our lives as individuals and the church? Can we just learn to say, yeah, God's up to something in my life. I don't know all the details of that. I don't know where that's going to lead me. I, I don't have a clue. If somebody had told me 15 years ago I was going to be the pastor of the Reverend Christ Church in Upland, I would have recommended them go to counseling. And yet, here I am. If somebody had told me 10 years ago that I was still going to be pastor of the Brethren Christ Church 10 years later, I would have said, yeah, you can do those things. Or the congregation needs to go to counseling. <laughs> you don't really need a counselor. I don't know. But this community has been part of the potter's wheel in my life, form, forming me towards that great completion that is in Christ Jesus. Can we learn to rest in that? Can we learn to simply breathe and say, yep, God's at work. I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know all the contours and details, but God's at work.
Are we willing to let God be the potter who makes out of us the legacy he desires? Some of us in the room, not all of us, but some of us in this room are beginning to worry about what kind of legacy are we going to leave when we get, you know, really old? Because we're only a little old right now. We're going to get really old soon. What kind of legacy are we going to leave? How will we be remembered? How will this church be remembered in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Will it even be here? Will anybody even remember it? What kind of legacy? What kind of legacy will we leave? And are we willing to let God be the potter who makes out of us the legacy he desires? Can we envision a future that's full of God aligning us to his great mission of reconciliation? Can we, can we see God's mission of taking this broken, spoiled, foiled, damaged creation and trying to redeem it and reconcile it and renew it into into his dwelling place through all eternity. Can we envision ourselves as aligned with that great purpose? What does it look like for us to be part of God's great mission of reconciliation? That's what Jeremiah is getting at. Jeremiah is not getting at, you people messed up and now you're going to get what you deserve. That's a convenient theological fraud for, that we take on because we want to distance ourselves from the real purpose of God, which is creating a new heaven and a new earth that he will dwell in with us. So can we envision a future in our lives full of God's aligning us to his great mission. That uh, Swedish theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, somebody who you just kind of quote every day, right? <laughs> Let me talk to you about Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard writes this, in his book, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. He is not, therefore, eternally responsible for whether he reaches his goal within this world of time. But without exception, he is eternally responsible for the kind of means he uses. And when, we, and when he only uses those means which are genuinely good, then, in the judgment of eternity... He is at the goal. Our mission in life, our purpose in life, our hope in life isn't to be the greatest, most glorious pot on the, on the shelf. It's to be what God makes us into. It's to be who God calls us to be. It's to embrace God's call to be part of his work of reconciling the world. And so it's not about reaching a goal somewhere. It's about the journey. It's about the process. It's about 
<coughs> how we live. It's about making sure the clay is centered on the wheel. Because I did figure out in the first day of pottery class that if the clay isn't in the center, you're not going to get a pot. That's just not going to happen. It's about learning how to center our lives, how to be centered by God in the midst of life and to live in that centeredness, to breathe, as Nancy so well put it this morning, to breathe in that centeredness that God puts us in. And it's only when we realize that we've done that, that we are that we are available to the potter in the appropriate way to be made into what he will make, that we are at our goal. The prophet speaks from God's point of view to God's people. You have broken the covenant with me time and time and time again and I am weary of it and I'm angry about it and it hurts and I'm ready to just cancel our agreement but if you're willing to come back to the table so am I that's God's call to us this morning that wherever we've experienced the brokenness of life wherever we have found ourselves flawed and shattered and incomplete and out of center. God invites us back to the wheel, back to the table, to be worked on anew and afresh. Not with instruments of torture, but with the loving hands of grace. Thanks be to God for his word.